how was this Jesus intended it to be? Now, in the context, I thought that was about the most obvious thing you could say. But take it out of its context and land it on a table in the Vatican by itself, and suddenly you had heresy. <laughs> the second sentence that I objected to was similar enough. It was about the church. And again, as you can imagine, through all of this in Ireland, as in here, we had enormous debates about the church. And, and how could an institution have covered up this dreadful evil for so long and then fail even to deal with it when it became public? And I said that the church, in, that the sentence was something along the lines, that the church, as we have it now, was not as Jesus intended. Now, there's a whole other question, did Jesus intend the church at all? But thankfully, I hadn't gone into that. <laughs> So over the next few months, taking the periods of silence and all the rest that I was supposed to do, what, I eventually, what we eventually decided to do, I got a theologian, a redemptorist, a colleague of my own, to write a statement for them. Now, and he produced one. He produced it in obtuse theological language that largely didn't... Well, reading through it, I could see this is written in such a way so that whoever reads it will get whatever they want to out of it. <laughs> now, to be honest with you, I wasn't very comfortable putting my name to that, but as I said to you, I didn't think the issues were worth losing my ministry over. I mean, God. Uh, anyway, the document went off. And it went off to Michael Braille. You see, all through this, I never had any direct communication with the CDF. Whose, whose head at the time was the American William Levada. So yeah, we, we sent it off to Michael Braille. He, on the appointed day, went over to the Vatican. He described it to me afterwards. Levada was sitting there with his underlings around him. And he said, now, Father Braille, will you read out the statement? And Braille, Michael rang out, read, read out the statement for him supposedly my statement. <laughs> and Cardinal Leveda sat back for a while and then he said, that is a very fine statement. Michael Braille couldn't wait to get to the phone throwing me and say, great news, he said, I think we've had a breakthrough. Grand. Except Leveda retired. Old age and was replaced by as you know, Gerhard Mueller. Different kettle of fish entirely. And Gerhard Mueller come the September of that year when he had got his feet solidly under the table, communicated to the Michael Braille. He didn't think it was a fine statement at all. And he needed more in this statement. And it was he then that brought in the hot issues that most media reports say were the, the issues that uh, anyway, and the, the two sentences he wanted as additions that I accept that women will never be ordained in the Catholic Church. It wasn't just that I didn't agree that I, I didn't agree that women shouldn't be ordained. What they wanted me to say was something much greater than that entirely: that it would never happen. And you imagine. And the other one was that I accepted all the moral teaching of the Catholic Church. So there it was. 
So actually, even though I call my book a question of conscience, when it got to that stage, it really wasn't. It was really quite simple. There was absolutely no way I could have given them that statement. Because for one thing, it would have been a lie. And Ireland is a small country, and I'd have been very well known, and people would have been very familiar with the fact that I had been saying the opposite for 20 or 30 years. So if I suddenly came around and published this statement with my name to it, everybody would have said, well, we know that we know he doesn't mean any of that. So any bit of credibility I'd have would be shot. But much more important was, how could I have any feel for my ministry from that day on, knowing what I had done to stay in it. So in the end, it was a simple choice. And what what I did this time was I gave them a statement, not what he was looking for, a different one, this time written largely by myself from one or two friends of mine who weren't theologians and written in the sort of style in which I tend to write. And of course, as I expected, Mueller said, Mueller didn't accept it. What he said was, it was incomplete, which I thought was an interesting word. And uh, so that was the breaking point. And from there on, I've been out of ministry. Um, Now, just one other little thing on it, which was another little codicil to it. So that happened in September, early October. The first week in November, we were having the annual general meeting of the Association of Catholic Priests. And any of you in religious life will understand this maybe better than others. In religious life, we take a a vow of obedience, which I took way, way back in 1965. God help us. And in... In religious life, the heaviest order you can get is one that's called a formal precept of obedience. And it has to come in writing with a very official stamp and all the rest. Um, And about two weeks before the annual general meeting, didn't this letter land on my desk from Michael Braille, a formal precept of obedience not to attend the annual general meeting of the Association of Catholic Priests. Now, think about that for a moment. The Association of Catholic Priests isn't exactly (laughs) Al-Qaeda. It is a group of old men, (laughs) all of whom, all of us, had spent 40 years laboring as priests, and most still continue to do so. And sudden, and I inquired among my colleagues and the Redemptors in Ireland, nobody could remember anyone ever receiving a formal precept of obedience about anything in the last 60 or 70 years. And here was I getting one not to attend the AGM of the association. So like, you know, at that stage it had become totally ridiculous. And, and I attended. Uh, but Michael Braille, in his letter, said that if I disobeyed this, it would put my position in the Redemptress in serious jeopardy. Now, to be fair to Michael, he did admit afterwards that he didn't believe in what he was doing, but that he only did it because he was under orders from the CDF. 
Anyway. So I was left then with a choice. Would I, I knew well, this was still in Benedict's time. Benedict was in place and Mueller was newly appointed, a relatively young man to the CDF. I said, there is no way that I'm going to get back into ministry as a priest. So the choices I had then was to remain silent for the rest of my life, live in the monastery, a quiet life. I'm not very good at that. <laughs> or else go public. Um, I ultimately didn't object that Vatican would have problems with some of the things that I would say are right. I think, you know, every institution has to have an authority, and the authority has an entitlement to do things like that. Now, of course, what they should have done was talk to me about it, and given me a chance to explain my point of view. But, and they didn't do that. But apart from that, I felt, okay, they had some entitlement there. But what I really objected to was the procedure. I have friends in the legal world in Dublin, and I met them, and I explained to them what was happening and the way the Vatican was operating towards me. And to use, to use a good Irish word, they were gobsmacked. They couldn't believe. What they said to me was, they said, no credible institution has operated like that since the 16th century. <laughs> and that's why I decided to go public. Because I said, maybe the best contribution I can make to the church for the rest of my life is to try to expose as fully as I possibly can the procedure that they used against me because it wasn't just me because as you know and I know very well there are many, many other people all around the world who are being treated in the same way by the church. And when, when I was in Washington on the first uh, leg of my trip uh, I had an interview with Maureen Fielder and Maureen in her interview was sort of putting questions to me that people might ask. And one of the questions she put to me was, you're a religious, you have a vow of obedience. What would you say to people who say that here you are now disobeying the legitimate authority of the church? And I don't know that this ever happened to you, that... Um, Sometimes in life when you're sort of struggling with an issue and you're trying to get your mind around it and trying to clarify in your own mind where exactly you stand on it. And then something happens like somebody asks you a question and you find yourself giving an answer and then it dawns on you, that's, that's it. That sums up where I'm at. That happened that day with Maureen. What I said to her, she, her question again was, how do you justify you religious with a vow of obedience disobeying the legitimate authority? And I said to her, the key, the key word there is legitimate, I said. Any institution that behaves in a way that tramples on the basic dignity and human rights of the individuals has long lost any claim to legitimacy. 
And that's what I feel is true. And until the church, quite apart from doctrine or anything else, until the procedures by which the church deals with people is radically brought up to date in line with good fundamental um, uh, teaching that's accepted by most uh, countries in the world at this stage, until that happens, the church will not regain credibility. Now, having said all that, there are a couple of things in my whole experience that I want to highlight that I think are fundamental. Number one, there's this question of the magisterium of the church. As we know now, the magisterium is the teaching authority of the church. But what is the magisterium? The God that I was dealing with had absolutely no doubt what the magisterium was. It was them. They gave the orders. They had the truth. They gave the orders. The rest of us obeyed. I, as a, a young person growing up after the Second Vatican Council, had a very different understanding of magisterium. For me and for my generation, the magisterium, okay, the Vatican was certainly part of it, but it wasn't the whole of it. The conferences of bishops around the world was a part of it. The writings and the reflection and the study of theologians was a part of it. And in line with the prayer we had at the beginning, the census fidelium, the good sense of the believing people. So that the two different understandings of what is the magisterium are radically opposed to each other. Now, just reflect on the last couple of weeks of the Senate and how Francis was operating. Okay, it wasn't perfect, but in all sorts of ways you can see that he is working on the Vatican II notion of, teaching, of, of, of what is the teaching body in the church. He, he was working on the notion of trying to let the voices of all the different elements within the church be heard. And the decisions come out of this great Jesuit word, discernment, listening with respect to everybody's voice and allowing it all to... You see, that's why Burke and his likes regard the whole thing as confusion. Of course it is confusion. And it's the nature of decision-making that involves the whole people of God to be confused and to be slow and to be difficult. The next couple of years is going to decide what understanding of magisterium prevails Will the Vatican II understanding at long last become the prevailing way of dealing with things in the church? Or will we revert back to the central decision-making by the Vatican? Second aspect of it then is related to that, the exercise of authority. And I think that the row between, or the dispute between the Vatican, or the CDF, and the 
women religious in this country is a very good illustration of that. In the generation before I joined the Redemptress in Ireland, each community has a superior. He was called a rector. And in that generation, he was like a little god. What he said went. And by and large, there was little or no appeal to his decision-making. It was a very dangerous system. And listening to the old redemptors who are now mostly dead, but the ones I had in my youth, they had all sorts of stories of, of men becoming rectors and superiors of houses and acting like little bullies. Human nature being as it is, gives somebody that sort of ultimate authority over others, and as often as not, it will be abused. Then came the Vatican Council, and in all my years as a redemptor, 50 of them now, our style of exercising authority was completely different. It was a style where decisions were made by the community, with the assistance and maybe the the, the chairmanship of the superior, so that it involved a fair bit of discussion. It involved a lot of trying to listen to people that you didn't agree with. And it involved a lot of meetings. You know the old joke where the, hell has been redefined, it's no longer fire and brimstone, it's just endless meetings. <laughs> <laughs> but the value of it, it's slow and it's messy and it's confusing. But when eventually, if it's done properly and if there's real, that word again, discernment going on and respect for the views of others, when the decision is made, it's a decision that can be owned by all. And again I say, the next four to five years in our church, which style of exercise of authority will prevail? And is it a problem with the American women religious and the Vatican? Is they have the two radically different notions of how you exercise authority. And it's hard for them to even understand each other because they don't even have a shared language to talk about authority. So that's the other big battle that's being fought. All the indications, I believe, from Francis are that he is trying as best he can to reintroduce that notion of decision-making based on discernment. Let's hope he'll prevail. And then the last thing, I suppose, which I've said already, the procedures in the church. We have to place the dignity of the human person and respect for the fundamental rights of every person to have a mind of their own, to have a voice of their own, and most important of all, to have a conscience of their own. That has to be put right at the top of policy within the church. We have a long way to go to that.
Now, so I suppose what, what am I saying now? And, and I, I don't want to go on too much longer. It's an awful temptation of redemptress to talk way beyond what they should. I think we're in a very exciting process. I, I, I know that people of the LBGT community would have been disappointed, and I can understand and hurt by some things that happened during the two weeks of the Senate. But I think taking the process in the round, I think it's enormously positive and hopeful. And what the Pope is clearly asking us to do now is to take the issues that they discussed and to discuss them at all levels in the church. Small communities and parishes and dioceses and nationally, any way we can. Now, we don't know whether the bishops are going to give a lead on that. <laughs> From what I'm learning of the American bishops, some will and a lot won't. But ultimately, you have to try to make sure that it happens. And that's where people like yourselves, people in the reform organizations are going to have a big, big part to play. I, uh, as was announced at the beginning, I was very involved in the uh, Association of Catholic Priests in Ireland. It's in existence now five years. It's been a, an extraordinarily interesting experience and time. We're all old, we priests, but I think in Ireland, we have managed to churn up the ground a little bit and create a situation where it is possible to talk about things and the sky doesn't fall in. And what has begun to happen now in Ireland in the last two to three years is that lay organizations are springing up and finding a voice some of them national and others of them local to particular areas and particular issues. And that to me is the great development because I think I'm no longer in the leadership of the uh, Association of Catholic Priests, but if I was, what I would be saying to them now is that maybe it's time for us priests to step back. That our day is coming to an end and that the service we need to provide now for whatever length of time priests will be around, the service we need to provide is to encourage and to support and to facilitate in every possible way that we can the voice of the lay people. So, so I'd say to you, I know you've all worked hard over the years, and it's hard to keep the momentum going, but now is the crucial time. This next 12 months uh, could, could decide so much. And as I said at the beginning, this is the sort of stuff historians will write about in 100 years' time. And will they say that this was the period when the church grasped the opportunity to renew itself? And you see... If, if, if we can get to a stage that Francis wants us clearly, I think, to get to where the voices of people are listened to, ultimately that's what I want. I, I don't want change in doctrine or anything like that. I, I, I think that's secondary 
to this because if we get the proper system going in the church where voices are heard and where decisions are made with discernment, then the spirit will be allowed to be free because centralized authority, centralized control, uh, as we've had in the church now for so long, kills the voice of the spirit. Francis is clearly trying to set it loose and if that can happen and if historians in a hundred years' time report that, we are heading into a, a wonderful era in the church. And it's great for our generation who believed it was going to happen 50 years ago and didn't live through the whole period of disillusionment and disappointment and who never thought we'd see this again. It's great that there is just a glimmer of opportunity that maybe it will happen again. So whatever the bishops do or do not do, it's up to all of us, and particularly to the lay people, to get your voices out. And in order to do that, you need to be organized, and you need to be very strategic in the way that you operate, because uh, the voices of a volume of people have enormous power. So that's enough said. Thank you very much. Thank you, and I just absolutely agree with you that we have to return to that. That notion is so fundamental that we have largely lost it under the last two papacies. Please, God. Uh, I forgot to say, please uh, say your name first before you ask the question. My name is Homosexuality, um, gay rights, uh, 
return of uh, Catholics to the, to the sacraments. Would you comment on that for a moment? <clears throat> I'm not sure if I spelt it out like that in my book, but I have no problem about the spelling out of it. You see, what I was asked to do was to state that I accepted all the moral teaching of the Catholic Church, and that would have meant accepting the Church position on all of those issues. And uh, obviously, uh, I would have all sorts of difficulties there. Uh, like, who was the bishop in Florida who said the issue of contraception that Humana Vita, that the train went out on that years and years ago. And, and, it, and it has an Ireland, actually, and, and it amazes me to see the, some of the bishops here still trying to cling on to, to, to that, whatever they think they will achieve by that. Um, some of the stuff that Joseph Ratzinger, before he became Pope, especially said about homosexuality and homosexual relations were, were just so uh, uh, dreadful. I mean, what word would you use about them? Um, and what, what I have found in Ireland is that in the last 10 years or so, the, the, the whole, there was an enormous change in the minds of people, of the ordinary people in this issue, because young people began to come out publicly about their sexual orientation. And now you meet old men and old women who will talk to you about those issues in a way that they never did before. And when you chat with them about it, you discover that maybe their grandson or their granddaughter or somebody of their extended family has come out. So it's no longer an, uh, a theoretic question. It's somebody that they love. And that changes the whole thing. So, so that uh, to listen to what Joseph Ratzinger said about uh, homosexuals when somebody you love is gay, it's just... Uh, how could anybody possibly say that except that? So issues like that. I'm disappointed that the question of people in second relationships is such a hot issue now. I would have thought that we sorted that one out back in the 1970s. Uh, because when I was a young priest, it was standard practice to tell people to make up their own minds and make a conscientious decision and that what was important, if they felt that they wanted to go to communion and felt that, that it was right for them to do it, that was grand. Um, but I suppose the church was more, lib more, more open then than it has been in recent times. But uh, to use the Eucharist as a weapon to discipline people or to try and impose certain judgments on people I find it hard to understand how any church person could even think like that. Like if you read the Gospels, it, it, the opposite, the fact that Jesus was willing to sit down for a meal with, with, with everybody and anybody, how can they possibly justify that? I'm rambling a bit, but that's the best I can do on it.
lecture. I'm, I'm still a full member of the Redemptress. Uh, there was a, a threat at an early stage that the CDF would force the Redemptress to dismiss me, but it hasn't come to that. And some I don't think it will come to that now because I think Francis has changed the mood. My colleagues in Ireland would be very supportive. <laughs> Most of them would share the same views that I have myself. Um, uh, when I showed a lot of them the final document that I was supposed to sign and publish, uh, their uh, reaction was, I couldn't possibly put my name to that either. So I, I have no difficulty that way. Superiors in the Redemptress were under pressure, rightly or wrongly, particularly the Superior General, but also the Provincial in Ireland, because they believed that if they stood up to the Vatican on my behalf, that what the Vatican would do, what the CDF would do, would be it would move them aside and appoint someone themselves to run the Redemptress. Now, I don't know whether that would have happened or not, but I know that that was used as a justification for the fact that my superiors did not make any effort to stand uh, for me in the... They just submitted completely to what they were being told by the Vatican. So that's the situation. I'm still a member of the Redemptress. I still... I uh, have a community, and I'm very much part of it. But I'm not allowed to do any ministry. Other... <laughs> Sorry, I didn't realize I had the loud voice. Uh, Father, uh, my name is Elizabeth Steele. Uh, I have three brothers who are priests in Kentucky, now married. One who became uh, Episcopal priest. Uh, the other two have been functioning in, within the church as lay people, even though they never got uh, lay aside. Um, I wonder, my question is, when, what do you think it will take for the hierarchy of the church in light of, an, of a few number of priests still operating within parishes to invite those priests who are now married uh, within the Catholic uh, hierarchy who were uh, back into the church and into mission and into ministry. Is yeah. there a possibility of that happening anytime within our lifetimes, do you think? I would think so, yes. I think that circumstances will, will force that. In, in, uh, again, I can speak better about Ireland than here. In Ireland, uh, the way we in the association have expressed it, certainly within 20 years there will be a major Eucharistic famine uh, unless something is done, even within 10 years. Um, so I think maybe circumstances will force them to do it in, in time and also will force them to move down the road of, you know, the thing of the very probati, the mature married men picked out from the community. I would see that happening too. Certainly compulsory celibacy will be gone, I would say, within 10 years because we already have, in England, for instance, there are a great many married priests, now priests who have come over from the Church of England with their wives and families and are operating as priests. So, uh, but then it'll <laughs> if Francis dies and if he's replaced by some really hardline right-winger, 
it's not a volume. But the other very interesting thing on this that I'm coming across here a lot is the intentional Eucharistic communities. And now that is barely in existence in Ireland, just maybe the beginnings of it. But here it seems to be quite a movement at this stage. And that's a really interesting movement where I suppose effectively what's happening is people are taking it into their own hands and celebrating the Eucharist. Now, that's uh, if that, what I find ironic about that, if the church authorities, bishops and, and Vatican continue to hold the line that there's only one type of priesthood, um, celibate males, and as a consequence of that then there are very few priests, if that leads to the growth of the intentional Eucharistic communities, the Vatican and the bishops could find that their actions actually bring about something that is far worse than anything they could have possibly imagined, which would be very ironic and a bit of fun. My name's Joe Marson. First of all, Tony, thanks for coming. Appreciate it. God bless you. I'm looking around at these people, some I know, most I don't know. But we're all brilliant. And I've lost a few hairs along the way. My wife and I were talking on our way up about the American church. You're from Ireland. Father Billy uh, Priestley came from Western Germany, I believe. Austria. So what's wrong with the American church? Do you have any insights? Our bishops, when we had the survey for, for uh, families, most of them did nothing. Our bishops did nothing, which is not the title. <laughs> but any insights that you might have about the American church, why? We have so many people. We could do so much. And as you said, the right people have to do it. And I, I'm with you. But any insights why we're not doing it? What can we do? Okay. Well, now, after 10 days uh, in the States, I'd be cautious about any insights that I might have. But <laughs> I, I, I'm impressed by the, the number of reform movements there are in the States and how active you all are and how, by and large, and I'm sure there are tensions and all of that, but by and large, you seem to be able to work together and, and I would think that you're having quite a significant impact and a significant voice. So I, I wouldn't be too pessimistic. I know we're old, but look, yeah, in Ireland, the young people, by and large, have given up on the church. You hardly see anybody under 50 in church anymore. There's a very small segment of very traditional young people, but only a tiny segment. The large majority of young people have just gone their way. Uh, but I think they're still within reach because uh, they're quite excited about Francis. And if, if we could manage to have a church that was giving a positive, welcoming message, I think a lot of them might be, become interested in it again. You see, when you think about it, for 30 years now we've had a church that uh, talked about laws, and condemnation. And is it surprising 
that young people wouldn't want to have anything to do with that. It really isn't, you know. So if, if the next couple of years work out well and Francis's way of doing things becomes embedded in the system, uh, I'd, I'd, be, I'd be very hopeful that maybe, and that people like you continue to plug away. Uh, Janine Gramick was with me for the first few days in the first few meetings I had. And Janine used to talk about Timothy Dolan and how... Um, a friend of hers spoke to Timothy Dolan about the gay and, and lesbian situation and said to Timothy Dolan, but what you're saying, she's, the person said, people don't believe what you're saying. People think differently nowadays. And Timothy Dolan answered and said, well, actually, the people who talk to me are saying what I'm saying. So, as Janine said, you know, maybe you are not making your voices heard with the bishops, clearly enough. So, so maybe there's more you can do in that area. I know it's difficult, and I know you feel like with a lot of them that you're beating your head against the stone wall. But at the same time, I would suggest that that might be an area in which you need to do more. And my mother is from Leedrum. <laughs> I went uh, on one of my four visits to Ireland, uh, as I usually did. I stayed, visited my brother, my cousin, who was undersecretary of agriculture, at least at that time, 13 years ago he was. Four lovely daughters, one's a doctor now, so you know, very high-level people. We're sitting around the table in the kitchen, and the one who eventually became the doctor said, you know, if any of our friends said they were even thinking about becoming a priest or a nun, we would think they were crazy. That's just, that's all I have to say. <laughs> Except that my cousin almost choked on his food, and his wife too. Don't say that to visitors from America. <laughs> yeah, and that's, that is the reality. There were... Um, I think 10 uh, seminaries for training priests in Ireland uh, up to 20 years ago. Now there's one, the National Seminary Minute, and 13 uh, young people entered that this year into first year from the whole of Ireland. So they, the vocations have almost ceased in Ireland. With the Redemptors, when I joined, there were 100 students training for the priesthood and the redemptors, there are now two. So that's the way it has gone. Would you advise your son or daughter to become a priest or a religious today? And there you go. Father, my name is Tom, and my visit to Ireland, when I talk to the young people, they use the word When I talk to the older ones, the ones like my age, it's like, oh, the church is over there. They really have, and at one time, the church, the parish priest and that, they worked side by side. And now, they don't talk about being betrayed. It's like they're irrelevant. And I look around and I say to myself, 
not to see 50 years. At my age, another 50 years is the 40, 35, 40-year-old young men and women do not grasp it. And I want to add another feature to this is you had referred to the hierarchy and it's a very organized type structure. The young parish priests or younger parish priests are in that role, my future role has got to be in relationship to my bishop and what he wants and all the rest of that. And I'm not sure that the, the lower level is receptive to sitting down with the 35 and the 45 because if their parish priest takes the message to a bishop that doesn't want to hear it, you know, it, it's dead. And, and I really feel that if anything happens to, to Francis, the game is over. <laughs> You could well be right. You could well be right. Those, the cynical among us say that's why he's living in, in Donus Marta, <laughs> so that somebody else will be eating the same food he's eating. <laughs> but you're right. Yes, look, certainly in Ireland, the lay people are becoming extremely vocal, uh, very strong, and the, the hierarchy of the church in Ireland, the lay people are gone miles ahead of them in terms of their thinking on, on church structures and on doctrine. And we had a very good illustration recently, I won't go into detail on it because it take too long, where a bishop issued uh, a pastoral saying he was introducing the permanent diaconate into his diocese. And the women of the diocese kicked up and made such a fuss that he had to withdraw it. And they, their argument was that the last thing we need now in our church is a further layer of male clericalism, which effectively would they said, be pushing us aside from the work that we are already doing in the church. And it, it was a real uh, insight for me into the power of an organized, strong, clear lay voice, especially a women's voice. So I do, Doug, I think, I, 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 again, I can only speak for Ireland, but I think they are, they are getting increasingly vocal they're increasingly, a lot of them are highly educated now, both in religion also. So they have some superb spokespeople. So I think that's good. Other questions? 
I think I just have one comment. I made a film with a few friends here, but my mom and dad, and probably a lot of people here, were not educated like the kids are today, and the people are today. And there's an old expression, they treated them like mushrooms, they kept them in the dark, and they let them stop, that's it. Just say, do as I say, go to church on Sunday, and that's all. But the people are more educated now, and they express themselves, and nobody wants to do it. Am I right? <laughs> You're certainly right that people are more educated now, that is good. And the, 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 our parents' generation, that image is very regularly used, the image of the mushroom. Keep them in the dark and feed them. <laughs> but yeah, and that, that's the key thing, that people are, like there are people in this room here tonight and there are women in this room who are highly educated in theology, probably a lot more than, than any of us priests. So it's a new reality in the church now. And I don't think that the authorities can forever remain silent to that. Like even, even the way some of the bishops are acting here in the States, and I won't, I won't name any names, you know what I'm talking about. I, I, think, <laughs> I think increasingly they have become just so so extreme that they, they're marginalizing themselves. And, and you know, maybe, maybe we need to sort of begin to just bypass them entirely. Uh, there are other bishops and authorities in the church here in America who are willing to listen and who are open to dialogue. And, and maybe that's the way we have to go, same in Ireland. Most of the bishops in Ireland, you wouldn't waste your time talking to them about anything serious because you'd get nowhere. But there are some. Father, um, my name is Anne Kanowski, and I am one of those rowdy women. Um, I was ordained a priest a year ago, and we are, those of you who are looking, uh, we, we came here right after Mass. We have Mass every Saturday evening. People pat me kindly on the head and they say, won't it be nice when the church accepts you? Won't it be nice when the church accepts women's ordination? I said, the church does accept women's ordination. The bishops are going to be fine. I hope they'll join us. Thank you very much. Well done to you. And uh, I've been following that old movement very closely because I know a couple of the people involved and uh, who have become ordained. I think an important thing here is for the different um, reform organizations, you don't have to fully agree with everything everybody is doing because in the situation that we're in, let everybody begin to try to chip away at the structures in whatever way they believe is the best way to go. And let's respect each other and the different ways we're doing it. And insofar as we can, work together on the issues on which we agree about. So I think that would be important.
Okay, so I hate I hate being up here because I'm blinded by the lights oh, and I can't see anybody. <laughs> okay, Chris. Yes, Chris, uh, <laughs> I am I, I, uh, <clears throat> embarrassed at the notion of you asking me a question seriously. <laughs> Somebody like you who has fought the fight for so long and with such great... Uh, uh, we don't have Catholic universities, you see, Chris. We, we only have state uh, universities, and none of them really have anything serious in the line of theology. Uh, the best of them is actually the Protestant, the one that was originally a Protestant one, Trinity College. Uh, so we're a bit bereft that way. Um, our religious, our women's religious are not getting any young people, so we don't have the sort of ones that you describe, not at all, unfortunately. And when we began the Association of Catholic Priests, we got great support from people like Sean Fagan and Inda McDonough and uh, Gabriel Daly and that, the, the, the great theologians of the Second Vatican Council who are now all in their 80s, the younger theologians wouldn't touch us with a barge pole and to this day don't. Uh, younger theologians in Ireland are a very disappointing group 
most of them, God, here, am I, here I am passing a judgment, most of them with their eyes fixed on a mitre. So we wouldn't have as positive a story as you to tell on that one, unfortunately. Well, my name is Gene Kramer. I'm a board member of Houston Church. Is one possible outcome of the synod uh, that many of the bishops, even those who were appointed to the understanding that they would be reliable yes-men and branch managers, are now going to feel empowered and by actually being given a voice and being taken seriously and that they no longer will be content uh, just to be those branch managers they were appointed to be. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> Let's hope they have the capacity to do that. Uh, but one of my hopes, uh, and I'd say uh, uh, all of you, is that the bulk of, you see, the, the, the people appointed during John Paul's and Benedict's era, you probably know this well, the criteria that were the crucial decisions for you to be appointed a bishop I did the spell of the superior of one of the redemptorist houses, and I used to get the questionnaire about certain people. And the three big issues was, does this, does this person accept the teaching of humana vitae, or have they ever spoken or written publicly against it? Have they ever spoken or written publicly suggesting that there may be women priests? And the third one, surprisingly, was, are they in favor of general absolution? They were the criteria by which uh, people were judged to be bishops in Ireland anyway. Uh, there was no question of whether they had leadership or not. Um, now, and, and as a consequence, what we have in Ireland, we don't have the culture warriors that you have. We have nondescript people who are nice but have, have no leadership at all and no public profile. But I would hope that the bulk of those will go with the way the wind is blowing. I, even since I came here to America in the last two weeks and have been following what's happening in Ireland, our main uh, uh, bishop was the highest public profile, the Archbishop of Dublin, Dermot Martin, who up to this would never remotely venture any statement about reform that mightn't go down well in Rome. Now suddenly he's becoming very liberal because he too sees the way the wind is blowing. So hopefully that will carry the majority along. My, my name is uh, Susan Guzik, I'm over here. <laughs> okay, so. My name is Susan Guzik and I was ordained as Deacon in the Association of Roman Catholic Priests this May. I am uh, an Antonelsi Deacon at the community of St. Bridget's in Brecksville. Um, I'm 78 years old, and when I just, I thought about, uh, you know, I've been following all of the activity about the women being ordained, and, and I loved it. I've been following them, I've been learning ordinations, and I kept thinking, I'm too old to do this. And a friend of mine was a year older than I am, and she said, well, I'm going to become a deacon. And last year I went to another ordination, and they looked at me and said, well, you're going to be the next one. So I finally decided, okay, God is calling me. And I thought, well, what can I do at 78, you know? But the most interesting thing that happened was I emailed all of my children at the same time to let them know what I was doing. They think I'm crazy anyhow, but that's okay. <laughs> because I've been a, a certified pastoral minister in the Diocese of Cleveland for years. 
only as a volunteer because I was told by a very dear friend of mine, a priest, to keep my day job and continue volunteering because positions here in the diocese don't last too long. You can have a job for one year or a couple of years and then you're gone. And being responsible of educating five children and sending them to Catholic schools for 13 years and on to college, I had to keep my day job. Okay. I'm very glad I did. Mm -hmm. But the interesting thing is the response from my children who are in their 40s and their friends has been wonderful. Good. They all think I'm wonderful. They all think what I'm doing is wonderful for the church. And most of them don't go to church anymore. <laughs> and that's a sad thing. But I just pray for all of them, and I know they're all spiritual beings. They're all spiritual people. So I have hope. I do have hope for our young people today. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. That's good. Okay, then. So we want to just end with a, a, a short prayer. You'll find it in your program. So I'm just going to invite you to say it with me. Do you see the closing prayer? Holy One, help us see glean new vision from our discussion today. Make us open enough to hear multiple nuances without arrogance, clear enough to avoid confusion and illusion, honest enough to face difficulty, humble enough to accept correction, brave enough to persevere despite rejection, thankful enough to recognize all the graces you have bestowed on us, your people, and joyful enough to celebrate your life-sustaining presence with us in all that we undertake. We ask this in the assurance of your constant and always empowering love. <laughs>